Welcome to the Messy City Podcast. This is Kevin Klickenberg. Delighted today to have uh, one of my internet friends who I've actually never had the good fortune to meet in person, but uh, need to correct that one of these days. This is, uh, we have Jason Segedy with us from uh, Akron, Ohio. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Kevin. It's great to be here, and we, we will make the in-person meeting happen one of these days. I really need to, and I'm sporting the Akron, uh, one of Akron's uh, most famous uh, exports, uh, the t-shirt today for the Black Keys, but I know Akron has actually a remarkable music history. Why don't we start there? You want to talk, just like brag a little bit about Akron and, you know, the musicians it's produced? I think what's interesting about Akron and this corner of Ohio when it comes to music is like we seem to specialize in kind of quirky uh, bands that people tend to know or musicians that people tend to know, but certainly don't hit the uh, the high peaks of fame, but are pretty influential. So, uh, for example, Devo Mm -hmm. uh, hails from Akron, uh, Chrissy Hind from The Pretenders. Mm -hmm. Um, as your shirt indicates, the Black Keys. Um, we also have like nearby in Canton, Marilyn Manson is from Canton and uh, 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 Maynard from Tool is from Raveno, which is kind of a more distant suburb of Akron. Mm-hmm. So we we tend to have like these edgier and quirkier artists that uh, come out of this area. I don't know if it's in, something in the water or what, but I don't know, man, but it's uh, that's pretty remarkable for, I mean, there's uh, when you agglomerate all of those cities in that part of Ohio, there's a lot of people, but a lot of those are not large, you know, cities to produce that many well-known musicians is pretty cool. Yeah, I think we we punch above our weight in that respect. Yeah. So Jason uh, used to be the planning director for the city of Akron for uh, a period of time and has recently moved on to a a different role. I, I came to know of Jason uh, through social media uh, in all its uh, warts and uh, good attributes. And um, we've had a lot of exchanges there over the years. But why don't you talk a little bit about uh, your background? I know you're from Akron. Uh, you're born and raised there. You, you went away, I think, for a little bit, but came back and you and obviously really care about the community. You know, why don't you talk a little about your background and and, and then we can also talk about what you're doing now. Sure. Um, so yeah, I am a lifelong Akronite, uh, resident of the city of Akron for all but two years when I was in grad school and I did a stint in Charlotte, um, for grad school. It was a great experience. I think it, it was very helpful to me to be away for at least a little while. And, uh, I think it helped with some perspective, both on where I'm from and just seeing another place. Um, I've lived in the city of Akron my whole life, so I'm a, an urbanite at heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, I've lived, I, I think, maybe within a mile and a half of the house I grew up in the whole time. So I've even kind of been in the same corner of the city uh, all those years. Um, my professional background, I, I loved maps as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually, honestly, what got me into urban planning was I loved maps and I loved Uh, neighborhoods. And I was always really interested in the city, even even when I was five. um, I really had an interest in that. So um, I ended up probably not surprisingly majoring in geography. Uh And uh, I got to that point in undergrad where uh, everyone gets to where you're like, what am I going to (laughs) do with this degree? 
And uh, didn't I like I like the idea of teaching, but I didn't really want to teach, so I went away to uh, UNC Charlotte, um, got my master's, and that was kind of where I really got into planning per se. I had a a research assistantship in transportation planning, and long story sh- short, I started working uh, ultimately for the Greater Akron Metropolitan Planning Organization here. Um, kind of worked my way up from an entry-level planner to the director over about 17 years. And, uh, and then more recently, as you said, I, I was asked by uh, Mayor Horrigan, our current mayor, to join his team in uh, 2016 when he was elected and served as the city planning director for uh, seven and a half years. And now I'm at the uh, University of Akron uh, in the president's office managing a uh, pretty extensive renovation project for a, a downtown building. Uh, that's I mean, it's, I'm smiling because it's kind of like brother from another mother thing a little bit here. Just, you know, I got all, all into all this originally just because as a kid, I had an incredible fascination with maps too. And, you know, it was bordering on the weird where I could probably, you know, and to, even to this day, I could just sit down and like fold open a map and just read the map for, you know, an hour or two hours or whatever, just always found them really interesting. And when I was a high school kid and thinking about like what to do, uh, I looked very seriously at cartography uh, as uh, a possibility. And then um, the funny thing is like at that time, the school counselors warded me off from that. They're like, well, we, let's look at the average salary of cartographers. And it was pretty bad. Uh, and I also had an interest in architecture, so I went into architecture ultimately, and then and then really found more of an interest on the urban design, urban planning side of architecture. But uh, the funny thing is that then, as you and I got older into middle age, you know, uh, time periods, it's almost been like there's been like a mapping renaissance and revolution with all of the digital tools of the last decade or so. It's really, which is really pretty incredible to see. Yeah, I think about the fact that if I would have had Google Earth or Google Maps when I was like 10 years old, I probably would have been glued to that device, you know, all all day long, Uh, because it was probably like you, you know, for a kid, I had a pretty good collection of atlases and like National Geographic maps. And uh, but you're right, like with tech, the ease at seeing other parts of the world um, you know, in great detail is, is really incredible. It's almost easy to forget how different it was even 20, 25, 30 years ago. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's pretty amazing thinking about the, some of the low tech stuff, you know, I did as a kid and, and what a challenge a lot of it was and, uh, how, how easy a lot of it is now. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Akron. There's a lot of stuff that I think we can cover today. I'm really interested to hit, you know, a lot of different areas, um, especially interested to hit some of um, the things that you have written about in the past and, and, I, and things that I know are your areas of interest related to uh, the Rust Belt, to Akron, and to planning and development issues. But uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on uh, in Akron and what, what the context is for, for that community. It's probably not a place that most people you know, think about immediately when they think about cities in, in, in America uh, at all. Sure. I think Akron, it really is in some ways like the quintessential mid-sized city. You know, it's like just large enough that there's a decent chance someone has probably heard of it. Um, Maybe even someone who isn't really in our circles 
Um, but it's also true that it's probably pretty unlikely they know much about it. I would say like the average American, if they can place Akron, they'll know that it's in Ohio. Um, they might know that it's near Cleveland. Uh, they might know that it had something to do with like tires mm -hmm. or the rubber industry or the Goodyear blimp. Um, but that's probably about it. So I, I think the one thing that's kind of interesting about the city's psyche, if you will, is that it, it kind of occupies that space of being either like a really, really big, smaller town uh, or a really small, uh, you know, metropolitan area. Or I mean, it's a medium sized metropolitan area, but just kind of like a small city in terms of uh, being on the national consciousness. Right. Right. And historically, it was really the tire industry that that uh, was kind of the locus for, for Akron. Right. Yeah. Just I can give you the 32nd history sure. of the city. So I'll gloss over a lot. But it uh, it was very small until after the Civil War. And I think even after the Civil War, it was like 10,000 people. It started as a canal town. Uh, it's right on the continental divide between uh, the Lake Erie watershed and the Ohio River hmm. watershed. So it became an important place for a canal to connect the Great Lakes to the uh, Mississippi and the Gulf. Um, rubber started in 1870. So uh, B.F. Goodrich himself actually came here from New York and started a rubber factory. And that led to at one time we had four Fortune 500 rubber companies uh, headquartered here: Goodyear, uh, BF Goodrich, Firestone, and General Tire. And what was interesting about Akron is we also had uh, the production facilities for all those plants. So even though it was probably one of the most blue-collar working-class cities in the United States, we had tens of thousands of rubber and tire production jobs. We also did have, uh, you know, the four Fortune 500 headquarters here, and that was kind of unique compared to a lot of Rust Belt cities. A lot of them had a lot of production, but not necessarily the white collar jobs, too. Um, and when when the industry kind of collapsed, uh, especially here locally, uh, we lost pretty much all of the blue collar stuff and a lot of the white collar, but. Uh, today, we're still the headquarters of Goodyear, but the other three uh, companies were either bought out by foreign competitors or uh, amalgamated somehow. And, um, and some of them have a small presence in like research or engineering, but um, mo most of that industry is more uh, history than the present in Akron today. Yeah. So what's then what's the effect been on that for Akron over the last three or four decades with all those changes? It's been it's been a wild ride. I mean, my I was born in uh, 1972, and I'm probably just about the uh, youngest you could be and have almost any memory of the uh, production of tires here. I do remember as a small kid, you know, there were parts of town you could still go to, and it would smell like burning rubber, uh, and there would be, you know, it was legit smokestack industry still. But even by the time I could remember, it was really winding down. The the industry here really started to decline in the you know early to mid seventies, and uh, so the city in the early eighties went through this you know gigantic restructuring of basically in a decade almost all of the production jobs disappearing. Mm -hmm. um, but it held on to like I was saying a lot of the white collar 
uh, portions of those companies. And then throughout the 80s and 90s, a lot of those jobs disappeared. Um, and so I think the city's history, like a lot of Rust Belt uh, cities in the last four or five decades, is kind of this continuing series of like readjustments to economic changes and then uh, another drop of the hammer <laughs> that you have to deal with. Um, I think we're fortunate. I mean, we we have lost a lot of people. We've lost about a third of our population. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the one comment I tend to get when people, you know, people in our line of work come from out of town and I drive them around is they'll usually say things like the city is really pretty intact or more mm-hmm. intact than I thought. And I, I think our decline, it was a little more gradual and it didn't crater in maybe exactly the same way that say like a Gary uh, or a Flint or a Youngstown did. Yeah. And the, I guess those cities were probably more dependent on strictly the blue collar jobs. And when those were gone, it just eviscerated, you know, what was left of those, uh, of those cities. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, so in the, in the current, or even in the last decade or two, you know, what's the, what's the shift been? What's the thinking? I, I, obviously like nationally, the big picture, you know, the big economic development trend has been eds and meds, um, you know, higher ed, uh, medical institutions, et cetera. Um, and, and it seems like some cities have done that and had success in um, either growing or retaining employment and others, uh, others just aren't able to, but what, what's the focus been uh, in Akron? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think in the 80s, you know, the immediate focus in in the 80s was kind of to stop the bleeding. And uh, the city had really latched onto this strategy with with some success. I think in retrospect, it wasn't as successful as people thought at the time. But the strategy of kind of rebranding as the polymer uh, capital of the world. And I don't know if even polymer is like, I mean, I, I know that term well from living here, but mm-hmm. my sense is like the average person in the average American city might not even know what a polymer is, but it's mm-hmm. basically plastics and rubber, uh, you know, rubber oriented products of one kind or another. And with a heavy in- emphasis on chemistry and, you know, the, the uh, chemical manipulations to create like something like uh, PVC, polyvinyl chloride, is mm-hmm. like a classic uh, polymer. And the University of Akron has the largest uh, polymer and engineering uh, center in the world. Mm. And uh, that's one of the university's main core areas of expertise and focus. And so the idea was that to build on that and kind of create this almost like polymer valley type industry cluster there are a lot of polymer, uh, you know, manufacturing or research firms in greater Akron. But I think the the vision was like, this was in the eighties was like, well, this will be our next new thing. And this will maybe not completely replace what was lost, but be a really good uh, surrogate for it. And I think in retrospect, like it definitely helped. It took the edge off and I think cushioned some of the economic blows, but in my opinion, it never really, took off exactly the way that people had envisioned. And so to your, uh, your, what you said earlier before your question was, I think in the nineties and there was a little bit of a pivot to more of a eds and meds strategy. Mm-hmm. It's definitely true to say that ed, like eds and meds is the, the main economic driver of the city in terms of employment and the university is a really large employer 
Um, our hospital systems, we have two or three large ones. Those are all the biggest employers. Um, but I wouldn't say that it like, unlike maybe like Baltimore or Pittsburgh, I'd say the Eds and Meds has been something that it's great. We have it. It, it provides a lot of jobs, but um, I, I don't personally feel like it. I don't think many people here would say this either. I don't think it, it alone is the answer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a great thing to have. Um, but I think, I guess to end on, uh, uh, let, let you respond, I, I don't think we've found that thing. And I think there's like a, a fundamental question of even like, is there a next yeah. new thing? Uh, or and, and I think that's a question that I, I'd say most American cities actually face. Like, who are we? Where are we going? What's going to be our economic base? Yeah. Was there, uh, obviously, as a city that developed in the late 19th and early 20th century, you probably have a lot of really great old, you know, neighborhoods and and great old buildings and everything. Was there, uh, did that sort of creative uh, class conversation get into Akron at all, which is like attract these creative class people who want to live in old places? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would say, I'm going to probably forget the exact year, but I'm sure it was in the early 2000s. Richard Florida came through town yeah, and, he did. <laughs> uh, you know, we had a couple other like creative class uh, consultants and, uh, and, and this, the city and, and like business leaders and the chamber and uh, others that are kind of in that general uh, sector, I think definitely were interested in the idea and kind of, you know, a lot of newspaper articles were written and, uh, but I would say like people thought like, yeah, maybe we can be a creative hub, but it never really turned into a, uh, I, I think like an explicit detailed strategy. And in my opinion, in, in retrospect, that might've been just as well. Cause I don't think that that, um, I think that's a, I love Akron, you know, like it's my own family, but, uh, there's a, to me, there's only so many cities that can really be that, yeah type of creative hub and uh our our talents or our opportunity might lie elsewhere yeah i remember one of the things you used to write a fair amount about uh jason was you know the the whole uh narrative about population decline in especially in rust belt areas and you know there i think a lot of the common thinking in the planning world has been that we uh, that communities basically need to accept sort of like a managed decline. Uh, if maybe that's an unfair way to put it, I don't know. But and you really pushed back on that um, pretty hard and pretty routinely about just that that thought process. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and I think that's a very fair characterization. Um, and. It's funny. It's a great topic because a lot of the writing and thinking I was doing on that is maybe seven, eight years old. And I've even kind of, I wouldn't say changed my thinking, but I've thought about it more. Mm -hmm. So I'll try to tag that onto the end of this response. But yeah, and I still do feel very strongly. I think think the idea that um, in like a Rust Belt city or a declining city, uh, although I get where people are coming from, and there are definitely cities where it is a heavier lift than others, um, I, I think, and I think the the prac like I, I like to think I'm a pretty practical person, but I'm also I try to be uh, forward thinking too. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose everyone thinks that about <laughs> themselves, but but I, so I can really see both sides. I can see the practical, like hey, Detroit's lost 
you know, 60% of its population is just never going to be as big. We need to shut these neighborhoods down and turn off the pipes and move these people. And I think that's one of those ideas that although it sounds practical, it's first blush, it's, it glosses over a lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, actual real world challenges, like maybe the most important of which is like people oriented or political. Um, Like people aren't just widgets that you can kind of shuffle around on a spreadsheet. But I think there's also, and this is the part that I really reacted to even more emotionally was like that fatalistic part of it, of just like we're doomed, like the best we can do is kind of put the patient in hospice care before nature (laughs) takes its course. And I mean, that's not a completely fair characterization, but that was like my emotional brain. Mm -hmm. That's what I would hear when people would talk about managed decline. And so when I became planning director, we really, you know, we had an initiative of a goal of growing the city back to 250,000 people. So our peak, we were at 290, we're at 190 today. And I purposely picked like an audacious number. It wasn't so much uh, that I believe I was positive the city could grow back to 250,000 people, but I just have always felt like if you're going to set a goal and your approach is like, oh, gee, I don't know, maybe someday someone might want to, you know, move here. I, I just feel like that's not very inspiring mm-hmm. or very uh, motivating. And so that 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 idea and that initiative was really like a, a call to action of uh, that the city should do what it has started to do pretty well is like send a clear message to investors and developers and prospective residents that we don't want to just go gently into that good night. And we, our aspiration is to grow and attract people back. And and that has had, uh, I think, some success in slowing the rate of decline. And I still think we'll ultimately uh, turn it around in the years to come. Are there some sort of like tangible programs or projects you undertook to, to try to do that, you know, when you were planning director or working with the mayor and others? Yeah, the the biggest one, and uh, you know, I was really thrilled that Mayor Horrigan was willing to adopt it. Was we created a citywide uh, residential property tax abatement program. So prior to uh, 2017, when that program was created, we really didn't have any sort of uh, strategic incentives. I would say, like a lot of cities, we would do one-offs mm-hmm. uh, with you know a given company, but they, they were very like jobs and business focused, and right, rightfully so. That's really important as well. But uh, I think the 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 de facto, uh, I think, uh, perspective from the city prior to Mayor Horgan, even if it wasn't, I don't think anyone would have said this was. Mm-hmm. The goal, I think, but the in practice, I think what it was, was we want the jobs here because they pay income tax. But if you don't want to live here, you know, we'd love it if you live here. But uh, if, you know, if you live near us and work here, then that's good enough. And so the creation of the residential program really was to incentivize people building homes here and apartments and uh, we went from, I think, the year before the program or before Mayor Horrigan took office, we had less than 20 new units of housing built. I mean, in a city of 190,000 mm-hmm. plus people, and there there have been, uh, you know, probably close to 2,000 now that have either been constructed or uh, or about to be constructed. So 
Uh, it hasn't completely reversed the population decline, but it, it has started to slow it. And a lot of our population loss now is more from uh, shrinking household size, mm -hmm. not so much losing households. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny. It reminds me that back when I was a young pup, the I think the first letter to the editor I ever wrote for the Kansas City Star that got published was uh, in a sort of a similar reaction that, you know, all of our incentive programs were geared for uh, basically for large corporations uh, to try to move and, you know, bring jobs in the community. And my uh, my letter was, you know, if we really want to rebuild our city, we should incentivize people to live here. And you know, have a flat incentive for, for housing. And, um, actually in the funny thing is just last year, the city kind of did that for a pretty large section of the city, but it's, uh, it's really taken a long time for that thinking to change. Um, so, you know, one of the other things that I'm uh, intrigued about Jason is, you know, you had a pretty important, uh, job in Akron as the planning director when I came to know you. Uh, and, uh, it's obviously, planning director is, can be a political job too. You're interacting and dealing with city politics on a, on a pretty regular basis. And yet you uh, were one of the rare people who would, would have a pretty regular voice uh, and speaking out on a lot of different things, putting your own thoughts out there. Uh, I'm curious about like how that was for you. Uh, and what, what was it that gave you or allowed you to have the sort of confidence to share just your own thoughts about what's going on, whether that's a national issue or a local issue or whatever, when so many people in those positions really just don't? Yeah, I appreciate that question. Um, I think that maybe there are a couple of things that um, help, helped me with that kind of approach to the job. Um, the two that come to mind is I, I was the executive director of our MPO, our Metropolitan Planning Organization, for um, all, seven plus years before I took the planning director job for the city. And I, I had gotten very used to being like a decision maker. You mm -hmm. know, the buck pretty much stopped with me. I still had a board that I, you know, was accountable to, but um, I, I grew very comfortable with like, you know, making decisions and, and, you know, pushing initiatives forward and things like that. And then I think I just, it, it, it is something I kind of wear on my sleeve, but I, I care about the city a lot. And I, I don't view jobs like a planning director as something where you just uh, kind of hide behind a bureaucracy. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe we can get into this. Lord knows there is plenty of bureaucracy <laughs> and plenty of politics and, and not even all of it is, is always, uh, sometimes it is bad, but it's not always bad. But, but, um, but I, I, I always felt like if I was ever to take a more political job, I needed to be able to still kind of have some sort of a leadership role uh, and to Mayor Horrigan's great credit, he really gave me space to kind of, um, you know, yeah, we were going to do ultimately what, you know, what he thought was best for the city. But he, you know, he 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 kind of encouraged like, you know, hey, I want fresh ideas. I want you to push the envelope a little bit. And I, I tell people this and it's the truth. I, I, and I didn't know him before he offered me the job. I mean, a lot of times these cabinet positions are someone knows the mayor or someone worked on their campaign or I, I didn't really, I'd never met him until uh, 
maybe a month before he offered me the job. And I, I told him, uh, and I've told other people this, I, I never had an aspiration to work for a mayor particular. It wasn't mm-hmm. that I hated the idea, but I, I, I know we've probably both known people. It's like from their earliest, you know, the day they graduate from college, they want to be this kind of political, yeah. you know, climber. And that, that just isn't me. So um, I, I always tried to take that approach to the job, but did try to be respectful of like, hey, I'm not the ultimate decider on these things. Um, but I, I always felt like I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't at least try to um, shake, you know, shake people's thinking up a little bit. So is Akron structured then a sort of a strong mayor system where the mayor basically hires department heads more or less? Yep. Very strong mayor system. Um, the, you know, the, uh, it's not a city manager. Okay. Uh, and, and so, and traditionally the mayors uh, in Akron, I think maybe even more than a lot of cities have been quite influential. Um, the mayor's predecessor was mayor for 28 years. Hmm. And he saw uh, that Mayor Plasquelic, he saw the city really through that transition from the end of the rubber industry, kind of to the, you know, through the early 21st century. So um, typically mayors in Akron, like they, they, they have quite a, quite an ability to, uh, you know, rally people and uh, have a lot of influence. Yeah. So you must know that a lot of other planners that worked in more of a city manager uh, form of government. Uh, sort of weak mayor, strong city manager. Did you, what do you think, what was your interaction like? What do you think about the difference between those kind of roles? I I, I imagine it must be a very different experience working in local government uh, in that respect. Yeah, I did get to, um, as you can probably imagine, I got to meet just a lot of planning directors, period. And that that was cool because, I mean, every city is so different um, in so many respects, uh, but then at the same time, all cities in so many respects are very similar. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of even if it's not uh, partisan, although most cities are blue, so the mm-hmm. you know the partisan part is is actually I think pretty consistent too. But um, you know the way a city is governed, even though there's different systems, the the dynamics I think are generally similar. So I guess I say all that to just say that it was always interesting to talk to other planning directors or other cabinet officials in cities and get their perspective on like the culture and how things work. And um, I think it's fair to say like, yeah, the planning directors that are under more of a city manager system um, I've known ones that were, you know, still pretty empowered, I think to um, generate ideas and kind of push things Um, And then conversely, I've known planning directors that were in strong mayor systems that even I think had uh, a lot of confidence from their mayor, but the culture just was like, you know, you, you really don't ever speak Hmm. to the media or to anyone. And um, I I would have found that kind of environment pretty stifling. And I, I don't think I would have liked that too much. And I guess just one final thought. I mean, I can see a lot of pros and cons to like the city manager versus the strong mayor system. I, I I really do think it, I I wouldn't say that one is always right. I think it really does kind of depend on your local context in your local city. I think they both have, you know, pros and cons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my experience has mostly been with the city manager form of government and the people, cities that I've lived in and people I know, but it's so funny that, 
so many like city manager form of government cities, the there's always just this discussion about should we be a strong mayor form instead? And uh, it, I'm sure it happens the other way as well. Um, I think it does. Yeah. Did you did you ever get or did you get a lot of blowback for speaking out uh, routinely and publicly on issues? Not not too much. I would say um, as and maybe we'll get into this, uh, you know, throughout the conversation. I I do think I mean, over the course of my career, I've been uh, well, I'm still kind of quasi governmental being Mm -hmm. at a state university, but the, the 26 years that I was in actual local government. Um, and, and maybe some of this is a manifestation of moving up the food chain, but uh, things have gotten a lot crazier. I, I would say that like, like from a interaction with the public standpoint mm-hmm. in particular, like the degree of uh, vitriol yeah. or just kind of like, in my opinion, bad faith or, or just, um, assuming the worst about people. And I mean, it can go both ways, Mm -hmm. but um, there's like a level of kind of craziness and people being unhinged that has noticeably increased in my opinion, since maybe like 20, you know, 2015, 2017, sometime around uh, then that I, I think it does make these jobs a lot harder to do. And, and toward the end of my tenure, uh, that was something that like it, it was it was really starting to affect the way that I viewed the job or or viewed the work because um it, you know it, it, I think a lot of the NIMBY conversation centers around this so it's probably a whole other rabbit hole we could go mm-hmm. down but um the degree to which like like I I don't want to go too long-winded here but just this thought came to mind I think, you know, in the planning profession, there's no doubt that in the 50s, 60s, 70s, it was this very, uh, you know, paternalistic, yeah. like we know best yeah. uh, we're the experts. orientation. We're the experts. We're going to tell you what needs to happen. Right. Absolutely. No, no argument about it. No yeah. question about it. Uh, no question about it. In my mind, at least that that was bad. Um but I would say that the pendulum swung back, and I think a lot the other way yeah. in retrospect, that that everything almost turned into like, well, let's just have a focus group come, you know, from the general public and decide what to do. And although I think public input is incredibly important, um, I, I've been in a lot of public meetings where planners took the approach or officials took the approach of, hey, just tell us what you want to see. And there would be people who would literally say like, well, I thought you were going to tell us that, (laughs) like, you know, and so I I even think like when you get outside of like the activist part of the public, which is a really small percentage of the public, Mm -hmm. but a very loud part of the public, most average people are looking for some sort of, you know, direction or guidance from people who have expertise in the area. And then, yeah, absolutely. They deserve and should have a say and the experts are often wrong or at least mm-hmm. partly wrong on things but i just feel like our our whole like professional and politic political dynamic has shifted um like so far into this almost like direct democracy on every single mm-hmm. decision that it, it it's crippling i think to to cities yeah yeah there's no question there's been 
you know, that huge shift over the last 30 or 40 years, uh, which was absolutely, like you said, as the result of terrible decisions made uh, for a number of years that really did destroy a lot of communities. Um, but we, as we seem to do as humans, we overcorrect. And, um, you know, we, we've come to a place now where it's hard to make any kind of a decision on anything. Uh, and then also, I think a lot of people working in local government know this. And there's a now there, there, I see a lot of uh, almost what I would say is like disingenuous public involvement as a result, too, because they they know they have to do it and check a box, but they really want to minimize it as much as they can. And because they kind of know what they want to do. Uh, so there's also like that other tendency, which is, which is a little weird. Um, right. I totally agree. And I think that happens both when, and this is just my own value judgment, of course, but that happens both when there's a really good project yeah. and when there's a bad project. Yeah, like yeah. I, I think when there's kind of, again, like you, in, you and I might agree a lot, you know, on which projects are good or bad, but when there's a quote unquote, bad project it's it's obviously in their best interest to kind of just go through the dog and pony show and go through the motions but even on the good projects uh where input would be really important uh you know even the best idea can be improved in my Mm -hmm. opinion i i do think a lot of public officials get into this like kind of check the box mentality or and this is where the politics intrudes they just there's there's very little stomach to ever push back against a vocal minority right. of people. Like in politics, it is always easier to just cave yeah. to them, especially if there's no organized opposition. Yeah. You know, I, I I've really come to see this, the truth of this in politics overall. Like the organized minority will always defeat. Uh, you know, the majority, like you could have 90% of people that either don't care or are for something and 10, 10%, even 2% of people, if they're organized and loud enough, like they will derail it. And I guess if it's a, in my opinion, a bad project, that's great. But um, I think it also shipwrecks a lot of good ideas and good projects. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and it probably stops a lot of things in their tracks before they ever get started as well, because people don't really have the stomach to tangle with a, uh, a very vocal, uh, interest group. Uh, and I think especially in this day and age where, uh, with social media, uh, and everything else that people really just come after each other, uh, in, in some pretty hideous ways, um, when they don't like what you're doing. Um, right. So, which actually then that kind of leads me to, I want to talk a little bit about social media with you because I think you have this really interesting, uh, history. I obviously came to know about you from Twitter. Uh, and, uh, you also have a blog on Tumblr, uh, called notes from the underground and you were really active on Twitter for a while. Then you went off completely. You came back on and you were really active again. And then you went off and you've been off for good uh, since then. I'm, so I've just been dying to ask you, you know, what's up with that? What's going on? Uh, how has that, you know, how has that impacted your thinking? I'm just curious how it's impacted your own personal life to just disengage from that completely. Yeah. And that, that I think is, uh, uh, is a lot of people say, uh, nowadays, many such cases, as far as that, <laughs> that trajectory of, uh, you know, the person that, uh, 
uh, you know, swears off Twitter for good. And then uh, they come crawling back. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I guess the whole trajectory, uh, what was kind of interesting, like I, um, I was on, I think I got on Twitter the first time ever in like 2010. So I was probably kind of a late adopter in some ways, but it, I'd say most people weren't maybe all that engaged on Twitter still at then, but I certainly wasn't on like the leading edge. Mm-hmm. And when I first encountered Twitter, my thought was like, who, who cares about whatever, what I can't even remember now, was it 140 or 160 yeah. characters yeah. at the time? But it was, you know, the tweets were even shorter. And I, I was like, who would, you know, want to hear people dribbling, you know, their thoughts out. But I, I kind of got interested in it, and it did seem like a great way uh, to connect with people and to share ideas. And I still think to this day, even being off of Twitter, that it has a lot to offer. Um, I will still, you know, lurk on there, like just reading what people are saying, because um, I do find it useful still as like a source for information. But um Anyway, like after tweeting for a couple years, like a, a couple colleagues said, like, you know, you have these long threads, you should turn these into a blog post. And mm-hmm. I kind of had the same view of blogging, like, well, I don't know, you know, who really wants to hear this or read this, but I do like to write. And so I did start the blog and uh, found that a lot of, I mean, in our small corner of the world, yeah. a lot of people were reading it and I got pretty good uh, feedback from people. And so I started blogging more and it, it and Twitter kind of became a, kind of a symbiotic, you know, relationship. I did, you know, when I quit Twitter the first time, which I think was maybe like 2018, um, I had just gotten, I, I think, I think what I, I don't want to say I underestimated it, but once I became, you know, like a planning director and was mo- even more in the public eye, it got it got harder, I think. Like the level of criticism got a lot higher, mm-hmm. um, which I accept in a lot of ways. But it was it was starting to kind of you know you're trying to just share something and people are just like trolling you continually, yeah. and that was why I left the first time. I mean, not the only reason. I felt like like a lot of people who use Twitter, I just felt like I was spending too much time on yeah. there too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of decided I would just post stuff from the blog, but then I kind of got interested again in engaging with people. But when I when I quit the second time and for good, it really was more it wasn't really any dramatic thing. Uh, it was more just it kind of goes with what I was saying before that I just feel like our whole society has gotten increasingly unhinged and just you know, really vitriolic on everything around politics. And like everything seems to be turning political. And I kind of just got to that point where I was like, you know what, I'm going to, to use another Twitter cliche, I'm going to touch grass more (laughs) and just get off of here. And and I definitely don't regret that decision. Um, The blog, I was in the process of migrating to Substack and I'm still planning on doing that. Really? I just got so busy that I, I'm kind of like halfway through that yeah. transition. And uh, but I'm sure I'll get back into that at some point. Yeah. Well, I hope you do. I think you're you're an excellent writer. 
and uh, even if you forego social media for good, and I can't blame you for that for a minute, uh, I, I, about every other week, I think about dumping it all. Um, but, uh, the writing, the long form writing, I think is incredibly useful, no matter what, whether you have 10 readers or 10,000 readers. Uh, and I think it would make a lot of sense to migrate that to Substack. Um, you've, you've got a, you know, you had a number of pieces on there that were really interesting. And, um, one of them that comes to mind, uh, I want to talk a little bit about when, when COVID first you know, really came on the scene as a thing. You had one or two longer form blog posts that were basically like, um, this is going to change everything. Um, this is a really big deal. People don't realize it. it's going to change everything. Uh, it's going to cause this series of cascading crises and everything else. And, uh, even as much as like, I liked your stuff. I remember at the time I had, I had a negative reaction to that. I was, I was just like, okay, let's calm down. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's a little out there. We don't know. Uh, yeah, turns out you were pretty much dead on uh, in in a lot of respects, and uh, I think that's one one of the things that I've really enjoyed, uh, in especially in thinking back over the last four years or so. Uh, you had a real knack for kind of understanding or having a distillation of what was kind of going on in the country, culturally, politically, or whatever that seems to be ahead of a lot of other people that I've read. And I, I'm curious if you've heard that, have, has people told you that before? Where do you think, you know, where do you think that comes from? Or, or do you, do you even agree with that? I appreciate you saying that. Um, and, and uh, full disclosure, I'm frequently wrong. <laughs> well, we all so, that. uh, but I, I think that maybe the COVID thing was a good example of this. And, and hopefully this will touch on your question and this isn't anything, you know, unique and precious about me, but I, I think that it is something I've tried to do. And it, it's something that maybe comes somewhat naturally because I just am interested in a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always tried to approach planning, you know, planning's my profession, uh, but it's not my life. And like, I've always tried to approach it as like even planning itself is part of like a holistic whole of like systems and how systems work. And I've always tried to read a lot and like read a lot of perspectives and read about a lot of different things. Like I've always felt like it even helps as a planner to know about art or to know about, you know, the history of world war one or, you know, whatever it might be that seems obscure. And I think like when COVID came Um, you know, and I'm certainly not any sort of expert on, you know, viruses Mm -hmm. or anything like that, but I just felt like from what I know about history and the way that people were reacting, that it was going to be that like in the end, the virus and the people getting sick and dying from the virus as awful as that is, would be like one of the less important parts of COVID. And I do think that has turned out to be, uh, true. And I would, I would say also, um, and I don't want to go too far afield to turning no, your right, podcast into COVID, but I think even the COVID itself, while it's true that the pandemic and the reaction to it caused all these other downstream effects, which I think, like you said, are, I don't think there's that many that are up for debate anymore, yeah. you know, yeah. that COVID was a catalyst. But I think even in that sense, 
like COVID itself, I think, and the way it was reacted to was like a manifestation of where we are yeah. as a culture. And so it's it's like this interesting set of, I think, causes and effects that we're, we're still living through. Yeah, I remember you, you put a lot of it in the lens of the book, The Fourth Turning. Uh, and, and how, you know, we're at a certain point in our history, which is very typical throughout, you know, the ages, uh, that, you know, societies have these big transition periods. And, and I think if I could paraphrase, it was more like, you know, this, this to me, this was an indication that we're in that period. And, and one of the catalysts that's going to bring about a lot of change. Yeah. And like, you know, the fourth turning, if uh, maybe if listeners aren't, you know, familiar with that, it, it's a pretty easy Google search or just like the generational theory that's yeah. kind of behind that book. I, I'd always try to say this when I wrote about it. I don't know if either either people maybe misinterpreted or didn't get what I was saying, or maybe I didn't articulate it well enough, but I don't think it's like astrology like I don't, you know, I don't put like. It sounds uh, so ominous, and you know. <laughs> yeah, and like I don't think you know Neil Howe and William Strauss, the writers of that book, have some you know pr uh, particular like you know uh, predictive uh, yeah. skills or anything. But I I always saw that book or that generational theory as a, a lens. You know, I, right. not that it's. I think there's all sorts of things about it that you could question or be skeptical about. I'm skeptical about a lot of it, but I find it to be a useful framework or lens. And I, I think especially that, uh, and, and it's really not unique to Howe and Strauss. You know, there's been a lot of historians over the ages that have had the same kind of general cyclical theory of right. history, but that, you know, society goes through these highs and lows and uh, things start to fall apart. And when they get to a certain level of falling apart, um, society out of necessity, you know, finds ways to kind of regroup sometimes easier than others, sometimes less or more tragically than others. But I absolutely believe we're in one of those times and I'm not a doomer, you know, I'm a, I, I am an optimist in the long term, but, uh, I, I do think actually things are going to get better before they get worse. Like with the period that we're in right now, cause I just think we have all sorts of systemic failures yeah. of almost every aspect of our society right now. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I I've struggled with that a lot lately because my inclination, um, is always to be pretty optimistic. That's just my personality to a large degree. Um, but, uh, I like to tell people I'm kind of short term pessimistic, uh, about a lot of things right now, or maybe for the next decade, but long term optimistic because I feel like in the end, humans always, whatever problems we create for ourselves, we always figure out a way uh, to overcome them eventually. Um, it may go through a period of hardship or whatever, but we, we always, we, we inevitably figure out a way to make things better on the backside at some point. Um, so, um, so I, you know, I, I found that pretty interesting just kind of thinking about you know, that lens and, and you're thinking about it in, in a certain way also influenced mine. And, uh, I don't know if it's because we're both people in flyover country or whatever, and have a different perspective on these things. But, uh, I also did want to like share a couple of just, uh, I want to do something I haven't done before with anybody else, but like just throw a couple ideas out there to your propositions and just have you react to them. 
and they kind of tie into this idea that we're in a transitional period. Uh, and some of this is stuff that I've said myself, and I'm just always curious about feedback on. But so one proposition that the uh, boom era for major coastal metros in America is over. Uh, short answer, I think that's true. And I, I can add a couple of things if, uh, if you Please want. Please do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I do think that it's something that I think it'll happen. The, the it being over will happen the same way that the boom started in the sense, I think it'll be incremental and gradual. So um, although I do think you have cities like, you know, San Francisco comes to mind or Portland, where there's been um, there's been significant degradation to the quality of life in those cities. And and I think that no PR um, can really cover that right now. And th- those two cities, I think, are are in pretty deep short term trouble. It's not that they're going to disappear. Or they won't still be. Right great, you know, cities or have a, have a, uh, even maybe have a fairly strong economy. But I think the, the Richard Florida idea of all these young people are going to come here and, um, you know, this is the kind of a nirvana. I I think the gloss is off, you know, on cities like that, especially that have just succumbed to disorder in a lot of ways. I think like a New York or, um, in LA or a city like that, it, it's, I think it's more, a lot of small things, you know, that are, um, not maybe the wind at their back the way that they used to be. Um, but I, I don't think, you know, I, I don't, I think that's going to be gradual, but, but I do think like the big coastal Metro being, you know, this place to be, uh, in a way that it was like in 2005, or, uh, you know, depending on the city, maybe even 1999 or whatever. I, mm. I, I think for the, for the short term, I think that's over. What about this analogy too? Uh, Detroit in 1950 is basically the same as uh, Silicon Valley in 2020. I think that at a certain level, um, I think on one level, that's probably true. And then maybe on another level, it's not. So I'll try to yeah, explain what I mean by that. So I think the general level where it's true is that, um, you know, Detroit in 1950 was the culmination of like 40 years of just this new technology, you know, that took the world by storm, the car, mm-hmm. and and really did. Uh, and it's not that Detroit wasn't on the map, but it it grew tremendously as a result of the auto industry and and it it, it did become the city's economic uh, engine you know bar none and it, it starting then it started to you know fall into decline even even in the 50s yeah. and that kind of accelerated i i think where it's very similar to silicon valley is that economic part that um you know silicon valley you know starting in the nineties, this, I mean, even with like tech and aerospace in the seventies, but which kind of gave it its base, but in the nineties with the, this invention of this new thing, the internet, you know, it, it had this multi-decade, you know, boom. And now where it's kind of peaked and probably we're over the, you know, the, over the hill on the roller coaster and starting to go down. I think that is absolutely true with its economy 
But I think maybe where it's different than Detroit is I wouldn't forecast or think that the pop, like, for example, the level of population loss, I don't think will be the same. I, I wouldn't predict, you know, Santa Clara County or San Mateo County or mm-hmm. San Francisco just starting to crater. Uh, San Francisco might start to crater a little bit, but in population, the way Detroit did, because I think there, then you start to get into issues of like, you know, some of the, are the racial tensions the same as they were in right. Detroit or is the built environment the same or is the climate the same? Yeah. And I, I think the answer to all those is no, they're not the same. So I think like from a perspective of will they lose two thirds of their population and be, uh, you know, have 50,000 vacant lots to deal with. I don't, I don't think that that will happen in Silicon Valley, but I think the shine is off and the growth the way it was, I think it is over. Yeah, I think that, I think that's fair. Uh, and there's certainly, you know, being in California, there's just, there are some advantages that uh, a place like Detroit just never had the incredible climate. San Francisco is an incredibly beautiful city, beautiful, natural landscape all around that whole area that is an attractive right. no matter what. Um, so on, on a more pragmatic level, what do you think about, you know, obviously we had a major shift um, about work from home uh, during the pandemic and which continues, especially in a lot of larger cities that lingers. Uh, one, you know, one thought going around is that the era of uh, commuting to the office as a primary driver of cities and economies is pretty much over. Uh, that we're going to have, uh, we're entering a whole new era where, you know, the way we shaped 20th century cities was really about, late 20th century cities was about the core office markets in the downtown or the suburbs that people commuted to uh, on a nine to five basis. And we built interstates to support that and arterial roads and everything. Uh, and now it kind of looks like we've, we've had a shock to that system, certainly the last few years. Do you see that shock continuing? Do you see, or how do you think about that changing? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting topic because I can, I'm sure you remember this time too, uh, being in the same general field. I mean, I remember when we were doing a, we were doing a ITS intelligent transportation system, strategic deployment plan in 1999, you know, when I was uh, still young, you know, and uh, a beginning planner. And I remember we had a chapter in the report on telecommuting and Mm -hmm. it was like, there's going to be this new thing called telecommuting and people won't have to go in the office every day, or maybe they'll go in, you know, three days a week. And for close to 20 years, like not that much happened with it. You know, I mean, I think there were definitely were people working remotely, but, but, you know, COVID was definitely the catalyst. uh, And, you know, the level of dramatic change, it's hard to overstate it. Um, it seems like to me now, um, both from what I see locally and also trying to read about what's going on in larger cities, it seems like generally have probably gotten to where most people who could or would work from home are doing it. Um, and there has been like a little trickle back to the office. But I do think that I'll, I think a lot of people will be working from home, at least partially for a long time. And uh, obviously that's had tremendous negative effects on like the commercial real mm-hmm. estate market. Yeah. I, I think the other meta trend that I think will happen that I don't think people are talking about, maybe it's because it sounds 
more doomerish and maybe it'll be, you know, either like my COVID prediction or not. <laughs> but I actually think that like white collar work in general in the United States is like probably at its peak. And I actually think that I think there are a lot of professional managerial class jobs that could disappear over the next 10 years. Like whether it's maybe some from AI, I, I kind of think AI still gets a little overblown. I could be completely wrong about that. But I think our I think we are going to end up reshoring manufacturing. I think the world is incredibly volatile. You know, China, Ukraine, um, all, all, you know, what whatever the next shoe to drop is. And that we we really could see a big shift where the country where blue collar jobs start becoming a lot more um, lucrative and necessary compared to what they were and where white collar jobs, the reverse happens. And I think if that happens, it's not just a matter of working from home, which I think will continue. But it's like I think that hurts like the office market even more. Yeah. And that starts to affect, you know, universities and other big white collar employers. So I could be wrong about that. But I, I, if I was in charge of preparing for that, I would try to prepare for that. Yeah. I don't know really how you can, but. Yeah, it, it's interesting. That kind of aligns with how I've talked about the impact of AI. And I, I do think AI will be a big deal for white collar work uh, in particular. And uh, it's not going to happen immediately, but probably over the course of a decade, uh, I, I can absolutely see it uh, eviscerate a, a whole lot of uh, white collar jobs that are kind of routine in the, in, in, in nature. Uh, uh, everything related to like compliance, a lot of insurance, a lot of paralegal, you know, uh, a lot of jobs in government that are about, you know, reviewing things and stamping them, et cetera. Um, I, the technology won't eliminate those jobs completely, but it will make, uh, I think it'll have the impact in many ways that I saw like with AutoCAD in architecture, you know, AutoCAD did not eliminate drafting jobs, but, you know, one person could do the work of previously five or six people. Uh, and so it saw drastically fewer, you know, necessary for certain jobs. So I could certainly see that uh, in white color. I think that's, that's true. You know, one other th uh, thing I'm curious about. So I, I had the chance, um, last year to speak to the uh, Missouri Main Streets Association Conference. And one of the things that I told them was there's never been a better uh, opportunity for uh, a better opening for smaller towns and smaller cities to reverse the decline of the last six or seven decades and attract uh, people. Um, and, and for a variety of reasons, uh, culture changing, um, you know, technology, et cetera, what do you think about that? How do you see that relative to Ohio? Yeah, I have I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. I think it is generally true, and it definitely fits with a lot of the things I, I you know, in my previous job, I tried to push in terms of regrowing the city's population and, and actually believing that that was possible, you know, even if the 250,000 number was a little more aspirational. But I think the I think the challenge for like the smaller and the mid-sized cities to take advantage of that is that I think the thing they have going for them is they're affordable mm -hmm. and many of them do offer although yes they don't offer like the exact same amenities that New York City 
offers. I mean, few do, <laughs> but um, I think they, you know, they offer reasonable, decent city amenities to a lot of people. Um, some cities more than others, but I'd say most mid-sized cities have some niche that they can kind of build on. I think that so, but I think that the two challenges that they have for like realizing that vision are there's a lot of them. So you know, like when you've got Peoria, Akron, Rochester, Grand Rapids, you know, Cedar Rapids, uh, uh, Springfield, Missouri, whatever mm-hmm. group of mid-sized cities you want, and of course there's you know a hundred times more than that. Um, I think like how they distinguish themselves or how they position themselves, like, like some of those cities, for example, I think can grow or start to turn around from like drawing people from their rural hinterland, like maybe others, there's like a larger city nearby that isn't doing so well, you know, and they start to get refugees from there, so to speak, or maybe they have a really great university and they can build on that, you know, both the education and the cultural aspects. But I think like they, they will kind of inherently uh, there, there's only so big of a pie, I think, for all those cities to compete for. And then I think the other thing that is really paramount uh, for a city like Akron or any other midsize city, and I, I do worry about even as a city resident is like the quality of life issue. So crime. Uh, homelessness, a lot of the disorder challenges, uh, vacant buildings, whatever it is, those cities, I, like Aaron Wren, I think has written about this a mm-hmm. lot. Like they have mm-hmm. such a small margin of error. Yeah. Like maybe in San Francisco, people will put up, they will definitely put up with a lot more of yeah. that just because it's San Francisco. Right. But I think if you're in a small or medium sized city and you have, you know, bad problems with crime or a lot of disorder, people can just easily go somewhere else. And so, and especially just to the suburbs, if nowhere else. Right. Right. Yeah. I think we even see that, you know, here in Kansas city, which, you know, we're, I don't know how you would classify us, maybe a mid-sized Metro area, uh, 2 million people in the Metro, uh, the city of Kansas city, Missouri, which is the, uh, heart of the urban core. Uh, the city itself is half a million, but the urban core area is really about 200,000. And um, you're right. I mean, I think especially in a city like this is something we talk about a lot locally is that if we allow too much uh, disorder, if the crime is really frightening to enough people, it is just so easy to pick up and move to one of the suburbs. Uh, and now we're in a position where a lot of those suburbs uh, have some urban amenities, uh, and they certainly don't have them in the same mass that the urban area has. But for a lot of people, uh, for most people, they may not care uh, about that. Like if you know, if there's a couple of decent restaurants and you know, and a and a place where they can get a good coffee shop and there's some nice parks and things that they really appreciate, that's that's enough. Especially if it's the difference between a safe neighborhood or not. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think sometimes I, I have this discussion with uh, some close planner friends a lot here locally that uh, I think like sometimes if you're an urbanist or a urban planner or in our general field, it's easy to overestimate how much people like normies, for lack of a better <laughs> word, like care about some of the things we care about. Yeah. There are things I think they do care about and that 
that maybe they don't even know they care about yeah. that we would promote. But I think certain things like, you know, um, is it, was it, was it built with a form based code and the buildings are closer to the street? I mean, I, I want them all to be built close yeah. to the street with the parking in the back. And I absolutely think we should keep pushing for that. But I think for like a, a normal person, if it's got a parking lot in front, but it's a great Indian restaurant or whatever, you know, they're they're going to go and they're not going to lose a lot of sleep over it the way that we might. Yeah, we have our own little uh, our own little twisted world that uh, we can get lost in uh, very easily. Uh, and uh, uh, there's no doubt we do that and talk about that with friends here regularly, too, that it's we have to always remind ourselves that. Uh, uh, a lot of the things that we value are not necessarily uh, valued by the majority uh, of people, even in our own city. Uh, but I, I'm, that doesn't mean there aren't essential human characteristics that appeal to people. And I think a lot of that, I think a lot of things that we call urbanism are are things that really connect with a deeper sense of humanity, but it's not obvious to most people. And I think for a lot of lay people uh, in our country who maybe have lived in a suburban lifestyle for two or three generations. Um, it doesn't even seem like it's something that is a real choice uh, or option. So, Right. And I do think that to add to what you said, I think there is a role for people in our line of work to help people to see the value of some of these things. Like you said, uh, I'm putting words in your mouth a little bit, but like sometimes they may not even know what they're missing or yeah. what it could be like. Uh, and I think, but I think that takes time and patience. Yeah. And I do, maybe this goes back to Twitter for a second, but like a lot of urbanists I would see on Twitter, especially younger people. Uh, and I get it. They have like the zeal of being, you know, 24 years sure. old or whatever. Yeah. But, but um, I think sometimes like the, the, the quintessential Twitter urbanist take would be like, these people are idiots. You know, how can they... How can they not know this? And I, I think like if you berate people and just tell them they're stupid or fat or lazy or whatever, because they, you know, don't see the value immediately of like a walkable urban form, you're going to needlessly alienate a lot of people that I think you could could eventually bring around. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Maybe the saving grace is those a lot of the people that they're berating aren't on Twitter anyway, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. It is also, you know, uh, a small world in its own, its own right. Um, Jason, we should probably wrap here. It's been a little over an hour. I really appreciate the time. Um, one thing I do like to ask when I close out, I, I do call this the messy city podcast. I like to ask people of a place, uh, whether it's a neighborhood or a whole city or a town that you think of when I mentioned that phrase was something that is more, uh, what we might call more organic or, or bottom up in its characteristics. What, what's something that comes to mind for you that, that you enjoy? Well, that's a great question. Uh, so in terms of a place I've been or just mm -hmm. thought about, yeah. uh, I think that, um, I think there are a lot of cities in, in this category, but uh, the first place that came to mind when you asked that was Youngstown, hmm. Ohio. So Youngstown's 50 miles to the east of Akron, uh, almost right on the border of Pennsylvania and Ohio. It was a steel town, um, probably one of the hardest hit cities in terms of population loss in the United States. 
Um, many things on the ground there. I think it's fair, and this is no disrespect to Youngstown. I think anyone working or living there would say this it, it is messy in some ways, but I love that city. And that city has, uh, I mean, it's kind of cliched to say oh, a city that struggled has a lot of heart, yeah. but Youngstown does have a lot of heart. But what I think I really like about Youngstown is, I mean, a lot of people who are listening, I would still suspect they've never been somewhere that's as disinvested and vacant as Youngstown is. And uh, I mean, it's on a level, uh, I think, beyond Detroit, and it doesn't have any of the advantages of uh, the size or scale of Detroit. But but Youngstown, like the degree to which it's maintained its culture and its pride in the city and a lot of the local custom, you know, there's a really large uh, Italian-American population in Youngstown. A lot of the traditions and like the parishes and the neighborhood um, amenities have, have been preserved. And so, and the downtown, I mean, I love the downtown because it was almost like it was frozen in amber mm. from 1940. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of historic buildings. So I think it's the first place I think of when you, when you say that. Interesting. Well, I haven't ever been to Youngstown, so I'll have to, when I make my Ohio tour, uh, and visit you, I'll have to check that out as well. Yes, I'd be happy to accompany you if you want. <laughs> well, Jason, thanks again for doing this. Uh, love to do it again sometime in the future and get that uh, get that blog over onto Substack and you know do some writing when you get a chance. I've been slack and I need to do that. All right. Well, thanks well, again. Thanks so much for having uh-huh, yeah. Bye-bye. Take care. <laughs>